Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this Lord's Day. All glory be to you. And we ask, Lord, that now, as your word is being preached, speak through us by your spirit, through this preacher, and to our hearts. Change us now, even as we sit here. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the biggest complaints that people have about Christianity is the wicked acts that Christians have done in the past. Unbelievers love to bring up things like the Crusades, uh, sins that Christians that they know personally have done, and priests who have abused children. Not that we're aligning ourselves with Roman Catholic priests, but unbelievers lump us all together anyway. When unbelievers bring up sins that people who have claimed to be Christians have done, our answer can be simply this. Yes, many people have done terrible things in the name of Christ, but that doesn't mean that they were Christians. And there's a lot of theological truth to that response. Many people claim to be Christians. Jesus says that not everyone who calls him Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. So just saying that you're a Christian doesn't make you one. But having said that, we also live with the reality that true, born-again Christians still struggle with sin. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10 through 10 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So it is clear that saved people still sin. So we hold these two truths in tension. People who sin are not saved, and people who are saved still sin. So how does that work? Well, what we don't want people to walk away with is this. I sin, so I must not be a Christian. Instead, what we want people to walk away with is, I'm a Christian, so I must not sin. Not in the sense of, I do not sin, which would make God a liar, but in the sense of, I refuse to sin. I refuse to let sin be my identity. I refuse to let sin dominate me. I am a Christian, so I must not sin. It's been well said that if you have a new relationship with Jesus, you have a new relationship with sin. And it is an adversarial one. And one day, the captain of our salvation will put it to death once and for all. Amen. But for right now, we fight. And the, the ironic result of our having victory over sin is that it actually may lead to even more suffering. We're going to see that in our passage today, that our holiness can lead to others' hatred of us. Pastor Rolo's holiness is going to lead many members of the military to hate him just by being a Christian. The world may actually punish us for not caving in to what it wants us to do. So our passage this morning is going to encourage us in two areas of the Christian walk. One, living as people who have been saved. And two, Suffering as people who will be saved. And our prayer for hope is that we're going to walk away from this building today emboldened in our battle against sin and strengthened in our tribulations 
while we wait for final victory. So let's look at each of these one at a time. Number one, live as people who have been saved. Live as people who have been saved. We're going to spend about half of our sermon on just verse one because it sets the stage for us for the rest of the passage. And here's how it begins. First Peter chapter four, verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The words since therefore point back to the passage we looked at last Sunday and specifically Peter's referring to Christ's suffering and his death for our sins. And just as Christ's suffering should motivate us to honor him in our own suffering, they should also motivate us to do what Peter is going to exhort us to do next. Peter says in verse 1 that Christ suffered in the flesh. Look back up to verse 18. We read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. As we mentioned last week, Christ suffered his whole life for us. But the suffering that Peter has in view here is specifically the culmination of his suffering, death on the cross for us. Jesus suffered in the flesh for us. And because he suffered in the flesh for us, Peter says in verse 1, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Jesus suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered to reconcile us to God. And we are to arm ourselves with, verse 1 says, the same way of thinking. Well, what was Jesus thinking when he endured suffering for us? There are a few things that we know that Jesus was thinking with regard to his suffering in the flesh. One, it was a sacrifice he was willing to make if his father willed it. Matthew 26, 39 says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So here we see Jesus asking the father for a different way if it's possible. He knows that, that when he goes to the cross, he's going to have the weight of sin of all humanity placed on him that will cause him to cry out, Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at the same time that he asks for the cup to pass from him, he submits himself to his Father's will, praying, Not as I will, but as you will. It was a sacrifice that he, was, he wasn't looking forward to in some ways, but it was a sacrifice he was willing to make if that was his father's will. Two, he looked ahead with joy at what his suffering would accomplish. Hebrews 12.2 encourages us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew that his suffering would accomplish the salvation of sinners like you and me all the way across the world, all who believe in him. And it would also lead to his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. So he looked ahead with joy. Number three, he had a mindset of humble obedience. He had a mindset of humble obedience. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says this, that he, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, being fully God and fully man, is the pinnacle example of everything that is humanly good. And one thing that he demonstrated perfectly, among everything else, is humble obedience. He took on the form of a servant when he took on human form. And in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to his Father all the way to dying on the cross for us. And fourth, he did it in love. He did it in love. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In laying down his life for we whom he calls his friends, he showed the greatest love imaginable. And Peter says in our passage, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. We should think as Jesus thought when he suffered on the cross for sinners like you and me. So what does that look like? Well, retracing those four ideas that we just outlined. Number one, we should be willing to make any sacrifice if it's God's will for us to do so. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24 through 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus went to the cross for us. And he said that if we will be his disciples, we should be willing to go to the cross for him. That being the highest form of obedience, we can extrapolate that we must be willing to sacrifice anything up to and including our own lives for the sake of the Savior. So we should be willing to, sac to make any sacrifice if it's God's will for us to do so. Secondly, just like him, we should look ahead with joy at what our suffering will accomplish. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our suffering necessarily leads to growing in the Lord and becoming more like Jesus Christ. Our suffering leads to our glorification. Romans 8, 16 through 17 puts it this way. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. As God's children, we are going to suffer with Christ. And we will be glorified just as Jesus has been glorified. So knowing that God uses our suffering for our salvation, we ought to, like Jesus, look ahead with joy at what our suffering will accomplish. Third, we should have a mindset of humble obedience. We should have a mindset of humble obedience. Referring back to the passage that we read in Philippians about Jesus taking on human flesh and becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. Paul says in Philippians 2.5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We are to humbly be obedient with Christ as our example. 
And fourthly, just like Jesus, we should do it in love. In love. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Just as Jesus died for us because he loved us, so we should obey him because we love him. And that obedience often includes suffering. We are to have the same way of thinking as Jesus did. That's what sanctification looks like, by the way. Okay? It's not just about doing what Jesus would have done. It's also about thinking what Jesus would have thought and feeling what Jesus would have felt. That is, according to what we know about the Savior from his word. So not only are we to conform our actions to Christ-likeness, but also our thoughts. And notice the proactiveness in this verse. Verse 1, arm yourselves. Imagine a soldier preparing for battle. The Christians to whom Peter is writing were to take up the mindset and the attitude of a soldier, ready to face whatever challenges would come his way. And in this case, the weapon of choice is the mindset of Christ when he suffered for us. Now, how does one arm himself in this way? You arm yourself with Christ's way of thinking by studying his word. Now, that includes, of course, the Gospels, in which we see what Jesus said, taught, and did. It also includes verses like the ones we've already shared so far, but it also includes the rest of the Bible. Jesus' thoughts were, were and are perfectly in line with the whole Bible. If thinking perfectly is thinking biblically, no one has thought as biblically as Jesus has. But reading the Bible is not enough. We're forgetful people, right? We need to meditate on the Bible. We need to think deeply about all that we've learned from the Word. And the more biblically we think, the more we're going to think like Jesus. And the more the Bible we know and the more Bible we understand, the more we have to arm ourselves with. So, verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And it continues now with an expansion of the reason to arm ourselves in this way. Notice verse 1. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does whoever has suffered in the flesh mean? Well, there are a few ideas on what that phrase suffered in the flesh means in the second part of the verse. And one idea is that it's talking about those who suffer in this world. And the reason why we don't think that it's that interpretation is that people who suffer in this world don't necessarily cease from sin. Another idea is that it's talking about those who have physically died. And we're getting closer because that's what it seems to be talking about when it talks about Christ's suffering in the flesh. Think back to verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, being put to death in the flesh. So Jesus died, and whoever has died has ceased from sin. Now, this is not to say that Jesus stopped sinning when he died because Jesus never sinned, okay? But it's true that other people who die stop sinning, that is, if they're in heaven. But this view is questionable because of what it says in verse 2, which we're going to get to in a little while. So what this phrase more likely means is that whoever has died to their sins has ceased from sin. There is a sense, brothers and sisters, in which we who have believed in Jesus Christ 
have died. Romans 6, 2 through 4 says, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If you're a Christian, just as your Savior died for you, you died to sin. And just as your Savior was resurrected for you, you now walk in newness of life. In Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Again, our old selves died with Jesus on the cross. Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Again, you have died. So that's what we think Peter is likewise getting at in 1 Peter 4.1. You have died. You are no longer your old self. You have been, as John 3 says, born again. You are, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 describes you, a new creation. And whoever has died in this way, verse 1, has ceased from sin. Ceased from sin. Now again, if we're thinking too black, too black and white on this, then everyone here is going to not take the Lord's Supper today and they're all going to start doubting their salvation. Why? Because none of us has ceased from sin. And that presents a problem for us. But we know that Peter isn't suggesting that if you're a Christian, you no longer sin. Well, how do we know that? Well, in chapter 1 of this book, verses 14 through 16, he urges his readers to be holy in all their conduct. You don't need to tell that to people who don't sin anymore. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, he exhorts them to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against their souls and to live honorable lives among the Gentiles. Again, you don't need to encourage sinless people to do that. In chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, he warns them to be vigilant against Satan. And what that implies is that Christians are still susceptible to temptations from Satan. So if Peter is not saying that Christians no longer sin, what is he saying? He's saying that sin is no longer something we walk in. Sin is no longer something we're okay with. Sin is no longer something we identify with. Sin is dead to us. You see? This is about our disposition towards sin. We have turned away from our sins and turned to Jesus Christ. Our sins are behind us. Our sins have no power over us, even though they often rear their ugly head. This is why it's important for us to understand the biblical distinction between the new creation and the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We who are in Christ are now new people, characterized not by sin but by righteousness. 
and holiness. And on the other hand, there is still part of us that is still subject to sin and opposed to God. And this is called in the Bible, the flesh. The flesh. Galatians 5.17 says this, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So still having the flesh, we still have a tendency sometimes towards sin, often, all the time. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's not the new creation. That's the flesh. Think about a caterpillar. Once a caterpillar is transformed, it is not a caterpillar anymore. This is amazing. Look this up after service today. It's actually a new organism. The organs in the caterpillar disintegrate, including its heart, and a new heart is formed. It's a new organism. It is now a butterfly. However, the butterfly still has remnants of its old form as a caterpillar. And that's who we are now, believers in Jesus Christ. No longer caterpillars, but butterflies. But with a remnant of the caterpillar remaining, the flesh. So because we've died in Christ to sin, we've ceased from sin. We do not do it anymore. And we mean that in this way. When parents say to their children, we don't do that in this family. When a parent says that, it's usually because the child just did it. (laughs) But the phrase, we don't do that in this family, means that is not acceptable to us. That is not who we are. And that's what Peter is saying. We don't sin in this family. First Baptist Church of the Lakes, we don't sin in this family. Wherever there is sin, we're going to root it out. And together, we're going to kill it. If there's sin in me, you're going to help me kill it. If there's sin in you, I'm going to do the same for you. But we do not sin in this family. Is that making sense to you? We spent a lot of time in that verse because it sets up the rest of our passage, which we're going to move through more quickly. The one who has ceased from sin did so, verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And this is why... It's not likely that verse 1 is talking about dying physically because verse 2 implies that the person who has suffered in the flesh continues to live, okay? So the person who has died did so with the result of living the rest of his life, verse 2, no longer for human passions. This is talking about the desires of the flesh. And he's about to list examples of those in verse 3, but for right now, suffice it to say that when we died in Christ... We didn't rise again to new life in order to go back and live the way that we used to live. No, we were born again to walk in newness of life. And to walk in newness of life is to live, verse 2 says, for the will of God. That's our purpose. That's what we were recreated for. We weren't recreated to live for human passions. We were recreated to live for the will of God. And the people of First Baptist Church of the Lakes live for the will of God. We do a poor job of it sometimes. But that's what we live for. We don't do what we used to do. We're done with that. 
Verse 3 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, that's in the past. Kids don't say this phrase anymore, but we used to say things like, blank is over, to express that something is no longer relevant. No, something is no longer in. And friends, what the Gentiles want to do is over. We are done with that. That's in our past. And that's what Peter is saying here. And in the second part of verse 3, he lists what it is that the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Let's look at that word sensuality. A lot of times it's helpful, just as a tip as you're studying the Bible, is compare how the other English translations have translated a word. And that a lot of times will give you a better sense of what the Hebrew or Greek word is saying. Okay? So other translations translate sensuality as debauchery, lewdness, indecent behavior, licentiousness, shameless sensuality, and unrestrained behavior. Isn't this the kind of thing that we, is celebrated in the world today? Pastorolo just reported that adultery is just out in the open. Is not one of the most common issues that people take with Christianity our outdated stance that you should only have sex in the confines of marriage? And marriage is only between one man and one woman? Everything outside of that biblical definition of God-honoring sex is sensuality. And that's what the world wants to do. But for us, that is over. Next on Peter's list is passions, also translated as lust or lusts or evil desires. Notice how related that word is to sensuality, but it, how it's different as well. Sensuality is what you do on the outside. Passions is what you do on the inside. Yes, even if you don't actually do something with your passions, it's still a sin. Jesus said that if you lust over a woman in your heart, that's tantamount to adultery, adultery. So for us, lust is over. And then there's verse 3, drunkenness. That's pretty straightforward, but it's not just about being drunk per se, though being drunk is itself a sin. But this is the kind of drunkenness that makes you act wild. The world loves that. And if you're a Christian, maybe you love that too at one point, but you don't love it anymore. Again, could a Christian have one too many? Could a Christian have an addiction to alcohol? Sure, but that is not the new creation. That's the flesh. For the new man, drunkenness is over. And then there are verse 3, orgies. Orgies in Peter's time involved feasting, drinking, and sexual promiscuity. And there is some of that going on today in the world, but even if it's not exactly like that, isn't something that's common in worldly parties, people hooking up? That's not you anymore, Christian. That may have been a part of your past, but that's not who you are anymore. He also lists, verse 3, drinking parties. And these were essentially festive gatherings where alcohol was consumed in abundance. Now, we don't think that drinking is a sin. But getting together to get drunk 
or even opening up the possibility to do so is not something that we do as those who have died to sin. And lastly, he lists in verse 3, lawless idolatry. It's an interesting phrase because isn't all idolatry lawless? But what Peter has in mind here is not merely worshiping false gods, which is in and of itself sin, but also doing sinful acts in the worship of them. So Gentiles would often participate in idol feasts, or they would even engage in sexual immorality as acts of worship to their false gods. The temple of Aphrodite even had temple prostitutes. And though modern idolatry is a bit more subversive, people will sin in the worship of their idols, but not us. That is in our past. Lawless idolatry is over. This isn't an exhaustive list, but it's relevant and it's representative. We used to walk in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. We used to walk in them, but not anymore. Again, we might struggle with desiring these sins and even doing them, but that is not us anymore. That is not who we are. That is not what we do. That is not what we're about That time is past. Christian, live as someone who has been saved. Christ suffered once for your sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh for it. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. And when you believed in him, you died too. He raised you to walk in the newness of life. Don't go back to your vomit like a dog. Listen, this needs to be our attitude towards sin. Yes, we do sin in thought, in word, in deed, but we need to look at sin the way it really is, as a disgusting part of our past. And we need to see ourselves the way we really are. New creations, born again, transformed, redeemed, reconciled, set apart. You are not who you were before. Do you think that thinking that way is going to help you in your war against sin? You can't go into battle like Eeyore. You have to go in like Tigger armed with the word of God and covered in his armor. You're new. Your old self is over. Live like it. So the word of God this morning encourages us to live as people who have been saved. And it also encourages us to, number two, suffer as people who will be saved. Suffer as people who will be saved. Verse four tells us what happens when we live that way. With respect to this, Unbelievers are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. For us, the time is past for doing the things that Gentiles want to do. And because of that, we are surprising to the world and not in a good way. At one time, Christianity had a strong influence throughout a lot of the United States. Now that's not to say that most people were followers of Jesus Christ, but at least out of social pressure, a lot of sins were taboo. It used to be considered impolite to even swear in public or to talk about the bedroom. 
Adultery, divorce, premarital sex, homosexuality, transgenderism were not considered normal. Again, we're not saying that everyone was Christian or that everything used to be better before, but we're just pointing out that many sins that were taboo before are now considered normal. And what that means is that you, as a follower of Christ, are standing out more and more, and not in a good way, in the eyes of the world. It is no longer enough for the world to simply live and let live. You must be an ally. You must be a supporter. And if you're not, you're a bigoted hater. Or with regard to drunkenness or orgies, you're just a straight edge. You're a killjoy. You're a buzzkill. Now, when you work in a church, Christian living is normal. But when you go to public or even private school, or you're out in the workplace, or you're around your unbelieving friends and family, Christian morality is not normal. And it's detestable to the world. And there's one of two things that are going to happen. One is that you're going to just cave into social pressure and you're just going to join them in the same flood of debauchery. We're going to take a little detour here because this is not what Peter is getting at. But acting just like the world is a real temptation for Christians. It is. This is why 1 Corinthians 15.33 says that bad company corrupts good morals and why James 4.4 warns that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And Proverbs 13.20 warns against being the companion of fools. And Romans 12.2 exhorts us to not be conformed to this world. The existence of those passages implies that it is a real temptation for Christians to get sucked into the ways of the world. And this is why it's very important that you are not, 2 Corinthians 6.14, unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What kind of relationship do we typically associate that verse with? Marriage, right? And that's right. But what about every other kind of relationship? Listen, who are your closest friends? Look, we need to associate with unbelievers because we live in the world where there's plenty of them, right? And we need to love them. We need to do good to them. We need to point them to Jesus Christ. But listen to me, listen. If your closest friends are unbelievers, you are unequally yoked with them. And you should not be surprised when you start to act just like them. Several people in this church family have walked away denying Christ. And there is a common theme with them. Their best friends were unbelievers. Now whether that was the case because they weren't truly saved or because they had made poor decisions and are now under the loving discipline of God is yet to be seen. We pray that it's the latter. But don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. If you don't want to get sucked into the world, keep a healthy distance from it. Again, you're going to have unbelieving friends. You must have unbelieving friends, but make sure that your closest friends love Jesus like you do. 
If your closest friends don't love Jesus like you do, why do you like them so much? Make sure that your closest friends will help you draw nearer to him rather than pull you away. And what that might mean is that you need to be intentional in fostering relationships with people in your church. If your pool of Christian friends is sorely lacking, and yet you don't prioritize things like being part of a D group, that's kind of on you. There are people here who will be your friends. I'll be your friend. (laughs) But you have to put in the effort too. Okay, that was a rabbit trail. Not Peter's point. Let's make our way back from the rabbit trail. Either you will join them in the same flood of debauchery or, verse 4, they will be surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. That's the goal. We want unbelievers, especially in this climate, to be surprised by us, even if not in a good way. We should stand out from them. If we look exactly like them, then we're not honoring the Lord in our hearts as holy. But that can come at a cost. It probably will come at a cost. The end of verse 4 says, And they malign you. The word malign means to speak harmful or false things about you, to criticize you or speak ill of you in a malicious way, to damage your reputation or harm your character. In Peter's time, for example, Christians were often accused of atheism, believe it or not, because they rejected the pantheon. They were accused of cannibalism because of the Lord's Supper. They were accused of sexual immorality. They were also persecuted for not worshiping the emperor as a god, which was seen as an act of treason. And because they refused to conform to sinful social norms, they were also considered separatists, threats to the social order. Doesn't that still happen today? Almost always, when you see a character portraying a Christian in a TV show or a movie, it's a mockery of Christianity. It's a caricature of a Christian. Is this mockery not a form of maligning? Aren't our beliefs and views misrepresented constantly? Do not Christians, especially online, receive verbal abuse and harassment? Are not Christian vendors sued for not being willing to practice their art to celebrate sexual immorality. And we have it easy. Christians in other places of the world suffer far worse than we do. The worst that we get in America right now is maligning. Yet we don't want to minimize that. It is part of the cost of being a Christian, being maligned by the world. And by the way, if your lifestyle is not worthy of being maligned by the world, you should probably reevaluate your lifestyle. This is not to say that your lifestyle may not have some overlaps with unbelievers where it's not sinful, but you should be different enough in some key areas that other that I'm sorry, that unbelievers won't like that about you. This is the reality of being a follower of Jesus Christ. But take heart, brothers and sisters, beloved, verse five says, but they will give an account, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is ready to judge the living and the dead. People love to quote Jesus saying, judge not. But he himself is the judge of all humanity. 
He is going to hold every single person accountable for their actions and decisions, and that includes those who are alive when he returns and all those who have passed. And when he returns, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, his people from those who have rejected him. Romans 14 tells us that we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And impartially, Christ's judgment is going to determine where each person goes for his sheep, blissful eternity with him, or to eternal torment, devoid of the light of God. Jesus is ready to judge the living and the dead. And those people who malign you, if they don't turn to Jesus Christ, verse 5, will give an account to him. The purpose of giving this account is so that you're either going to be rewarded for the good that you've done as a believer or be properly sentenced for what you've done as an unbeliever. Listen closely. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, there is no plea deal. You're going to have no choice but to plead guilty because the evidence is stacked against you. And you're going to stand in court listing the various laws of God that you have broken and you will feel the weight of all that you have done against the holy God. And then you're going to be appropriately sentenced. Your sentence will neither be too long nor too short. It's going to be exactly what your sins deserve. Multiple life sentences stretching into eternity. Friends, you're still alive today and Christ has not yet returned. This afternoon, we are pleading with you not to go to the judgment seat in that state. Please don't go in that state. Would you rather not go to that judgment seat and let your plea be not guilty by reason of Christ? If you place your trust in Jesus Christ even now, that's what that accounting is going to be like for you. Perhaps, yes, you'll still give an account for the sins that you've committed, but it will ultimately be a joyous account because it's only going to highlight the depths of God's grace that saved us. And having given our account, the case will be dismissed and our accuser will be thrown into the lake of fire. Wouldn't you rather face a judgment seat like that? Do not wait. Believe in Jesus Christ now. But brothers and sisters in Christ... Peter is telling us this for a different reason. The idea that he is giving us here is that we're going to be vindicated. Those who are surprised that we will not join them in sin and therefore malign us will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Don't worry about the maligning, brothers and sisters. You are going to be vindicated. And though you may look to the world like a fool and an abomination now, you will be lifted up as the wise and the pure while the others will face the judgment that they are due. God's will for us is that we suffer now, but those who cause our suffering will get what they deserve. And that will be satisfying to us. Revelation speaks of the souls of martyred believers crying out for God to avenge their blood. It also speaks of the rejoicing in heaven over the judgment of those who oppose God and persecute his people. We may not be comfortable 
with the idea of rejoicing over God's judgment of people. But it's because we're not really thinking about it the right way. When you watch, for example, Lord of the Rings, and you see the bad guys being crushed by the good guys in the final moment, you don't say, those poor orcs. No, you cheer because those orcs were evil and they were killing the good guys. This is how we're going to see the judgment of God in the end. We're not going to be sadistic about it, but we're going to rejoice in God's vindication of us and vengeance on our behalf. Those people will have sinned against God their whole life and persecuted his people. And furthermore, they will have flatly rejected God's offer of peace in Christ. We will rightly see that they deserve what's coming to them. And we're going to rejoice in Christ's victory. Again, that may be hard for us to grasp now. It's hard for me to get the words out, but we will clearly see that in the end. Verse 6 continues, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This verse can be understood in a couple of ways. One is that it's talking about the gospel having been preached to people before they were dead, but they're dead now. And that would be a true statement. For those who believe the gospel and are dead now, they may have received the punishment of the curse of Adam, death, but they are alive in the spirit, just as God is. Another possibility is that this verse is talking about what many Christians have believed throughout the centuries, and that is that Jesus, in between his death and resurrection, went to Hades and preached the gospel. This is not necessarily to say that people got a second chance, but rather that those who believed in God's promises in the old covenant and were in what Jesus described in the parable as Abraham's bosom got to hear about what Jesus accomplished for them on the cross. Not all Christians believe that historic doctrine, but if that's what Peter is talking about, then what he's saying is that those dead Old Testament believers who were waiting for God's salvation had the gospel preached to them, and even though they died just as all men die because of sin, they were not abandoned to Sheol, but granted to live in the Spirit the way God does. But whatever the case, the point that Peter is making is that the reason the gospel was preached is because Jesus is coming to judge. And the only escape that people have from that judgment, the only escape that you have from that judgment is believing the good news of Jesus Christ. And because the gospel was preached to you and you believed it, if you do, you will be saved. This coming salvation is imminent. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. It's coming soon, brothers and sisters. Now that might seem silly because Christians have been saying that for 2,000 years. But it really is at hand. It may not be as soon as we would like it to be. But in God's perspective, 2 Peter 3.8, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years as one day. So in one sense, it's soon because of God's perspective. And by the way, Peter encourages in 2 Peter 3, Christians in his time who might have been feeling the same way as we are. I thought Jesus said he was coming soon. Where is he? They were already thinking that in Peter's time. And Peter assures them in the next verse in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we might think that God's taking too long to end all things. But the reason he's doing this is his patience. He is giving more time for more of the world to be reached by the gospel. He's giving more opportunities for people to hear the gospel, and he is bringing in his people. But from God's perspective, the end of all things is at hand. And we're called to live like how all Christians throughout the centuries have been called to live, as if it could happen at any time. The next verse in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We don't know when it will happen. We don't know if it will happen in our lifetimes or even in this millennium. But here's what we do know. When it happens, it's going to happen suddenly. And Christians are called to live as if it could happen at any time because it really can. So because the end of all things is at hand, Peter exhorts the church, verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded. This is back in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Tying this back into the Gentiles' favorite pastimes that Peter listed, we see a theme of a lack of self-control, a lack of sober-mindedness in them, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatries. All of these are, in a nutshell, sinners lacking any kind of self-control or clarity of mind. People talk about getting wasted like it's a good thing. People talk about their number of sexual partners like it's a good thing. But that's not the way of a Christian. A Christian, mindful of the coming end of the world, strives by God's grace to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why is that? Why are these things connected to the end of the world? Well, in part, it's because what we want to hear when Christ returns is something like, well done, good and faithful servant. Not, okay, come on in, you drunk. <laughs> While we'll never be perfect in this world, Christians can attain a level of Christ-likeness. You can, by God's grace. And out of love and gratitude, we want to have Christ-likeness, some level, some degree of it, when Christ returns. But the reason Peter gives in verse 7 for being self-controlled and sober-minded in light of Christ's return is this, for the sake of your prayers. Has this not been a theme in Peter's book? Did he not warn unreasonable husbands that their prayers would be hindered? In, in the last sermon, did he not quote a psalm that says that God's ears are open to the prayers of the righteous? And again, similarly, if you lack self-control and sober-mindedness, don't be surprised if it seems like God is saying no to a lot of your prayers. Like we said last week, being holy is not a guarantee that God is going to grant you your every request. But the consistent teaching of all of the scriptures is that God is pleased to bless those who are righteous. That is, the self-controlled and the sober-minded. In these last days, we are in desperate need of God. And therefore, we desperately need to pray. And if our prayers would be effective, we cannot live like the world. Those days are behind us. 
But again, that faithfulness will often lead to suffering. Take heart. Jesus is ready to judge the living and the dead. And the end of all things is at hand. Live like someone who has been saved and suffer like someone who will be saved. What shall we do with these things? Here are four quick applications. Number one, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You might think that this is some sort of cliche addendum that we add to the end of every sermon just to check off our evangelism box, but no, this gospel is for everybody. All of us have sinned and deserve God's wrath, but God gave his only son for us. Place your trust in him who lived for, died for, and rose again for sinners, and you will be saved. And that faith is ongoing. Trusting in Jesus is something that we do each and every day for the rest of our lives. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever here this morning, the answer is the same. Trust in Jesus Christ to save you. Number two, remember who you are. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your old self is a dying remnant of you, but it's not who you are anymore. You are a new creation, a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, alive in him and dead to sin. Own it. Act like it. Number three, kill your sin. Your flesh is that which remains that is sinful, and it needs to be attacked with prejudice. Don't coddle it. Don't protect it. Get in there and obliterate it. As John Piper says, make war. And four, have hope. Have hope. You're going to suffer, beloved. But the end of all things is at hand. Either Jesus is going to come back in our lifetimes or you're going to go to him early to return with him in victory before too long. In the grand scheme of eternity, this life is going to be a blink of an eye. Hang in there. Keep fighting by his grace and for his glory. Haste thee on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee, God's own hand shall guide thee there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition. Faith to sight and prayer to praise. Sermon in a sentence. Let us live as people who have been saved and suffer as people who will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for giving your only son for us and for sending the spirit to give us new life. And we ask, O oh Lord, that we would live as those who have been saved by you. We are so tempted to go back to the way that we used to live, but God forbid that we do that. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would fill us afresh this morning with a hope of your coming return to save us, your son, your son's return to save us. Lord, we need your help as always in these things, and so we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen.